I was sitting with someone this week, and they had tears coming down their face, and they were asking the question, um, God, don't you see me? And if you don't see me, uh, and if you do see me, why aren't you do any, doing anything about it? You know, when we face suffering in this world, uh, when we face tragedy, when we face heartache, that is the question that we ask. And that's actually the very question that the people of Israel are asking, uh, these doubts and these questions that arise from, from tragedy and heartache. God, do you see us? And if you do see us, do you care? I wonder if you can hear it in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and why do you keep on speaking, O Israel, saying, My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. My way is hidden from the Lord. God, do you see us? And my right is disregarded by my God. God, do you care? See, these are the questions that the people of Israel are asking. And these are the human questions that we all ask when we face suffering. I was um, sitting with a college student years ago who was having a crisis of faith. And the crisis of faith came because she had spent time in India And as she looked around at all the poverty and all the suffering, and she considered the ignorance of the people there as far as they had no knowledge of the gospel. And she said, I don't understand why, Lord. And she was shaken. You know, these questions, they don't go away. If you were to translate... Verse 27, more literally, it's, why do you keep on saying, O Israel? Why do you keep on speaking? It's, it's a question that presents itself, and it's nagging, and it's there. And we wonder, how can we maintain our faith in the face of the evil and the suffering that we see around us? Bart Erdman is an agnostic New Testament scholar. He works at the University of North Carolina, and his specialty is on the New Testament manuscripts. Uh, He is not a Christian. He's an agnostic, and he has given up his faith. If you asked him what caused him to give up his evangelical faith as a Wheaton alum, he would say it doesn't have to do with the New Testament manuscripts, which he thinks are unreliable. He says that he simply, quote, cannot believe in an all-powerful, good, loving God when there's so much unexplained evil and suffering in the world. And many of you were there with these doubts and these questions. The same doubts and questions that Israel has. And... And what I want to ask this morning is what could bring comfort in the face of such doubt, such questions, such experiences with the realities and the heartache of this world? Because Isaiah 40 is written to give comfort. Verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And what does Isaiah believe will bring these people comfort? Look at verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, and say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. 
What does Isaiah think that we need? We need a vision of God. An expanded vision of God. That's what our doubting souls need. I mean, look again at verses 27 through 28. Isaiah asked the question, Why do you keep on saying, O Israel, and why do you... Speak, O Jacob, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God? See, what does Isaiah assume? He assumes that these doubts, these questions that we have, that they... That they actually come from a place. That they come from the fact that these people either do not know who God is or they have forgotten. Do you not know? Have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God? See, because you must be forgetting. Or you must not know. Doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. I want to make that really clear. Everybody, everybody who follows the Lord doubts. And and doubt is actually the way to a stronger faith. Uh, Abraham doubted. David doubted. Read the Psalms. Uh, John the Baptist, the greatest of all before Jesus, doubted. Doubt is a normal part of the Christian faith. Doubt happens, though, when the superficialities of our faith meet the realities of this world. Because what we find in our doubts is that, is that, is that we don't have a God big enough to meet the challenges that we face. In other words, at the root of all doubt is a paltry vision of God. But that means that our doubts are also invita- they're also opportunities. See, because they show us where we have limited God. And they're also invitations because they invite us to expand our vision of God. Isaiah 40 expands our vision of God. Look, verse 12 asks rhetorically, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Have you ever tried to transfer water in the hollow of your hand? Like moved some water from the sink to somewhere else just in the hollow of your hand? How far did you get? Probably not very far. Uh, consider, Consider those like massive waves that crush the big wave surfers and the pounds of pressure that come on them and that those people like many surfers have died from these big waves, right? One wave. And now consider the fact that God holds all the oceans in the hollow of his hand. And that he he measures the universe with the span of it. Rajan Rondo is, um, has freakishly big hands. He's a point guard for, uh, the Boston Celtics. And, um, 
And his hands are so big. He's only 6'1". That's not very tall for NBA basketball standards. I realize that it's like the Nephilim compared to me. But for him, uh, you know, that's not that big. But his hands proportionally are the size of someone who should be 7'5". Which is why he's able to palm a basketball so easily. Verse 12 says that God palms the universe like Rajan Rondo palms a basketball. The universe is an amazing place, and the stars are kind of mind-boggling to me. i got to be honest. I, I, I talk to these folks that study it, and it just doesn't even make sense. I mean, the nearest star uh, apart from the sun, which my daughter tells me is a star, is like, I don't know, 27 million miles away or something like that. Like, I don't know what you do with those numbers. Uh, but I do know this. You walk out in the night sky, and it's completely dark. And you go out somewhere where there's no lights around, and you look up at the stars. God told Abraham, look up at the stars. Count them if you can. And it just seems like they're like millions of stars. Actually, I'm told that we can only see about 9,000 with the naked eye. 9,000, which is a fraction of what actually exists out there, which is like three septillion. Septillion. For those of you who who don't work with those numbers a lot, because you're not dealing a lot with our national debt, um, (laughs) septillion is a three with 27 zeros after it. Now, again, mind-boggling. I, my eyes roll back in the back of my head. And that's all the, that's of, of the ones we know about. So like, let me do a thought experiment. Let's think about this. Think about a second. One second. Done. One Mississippi. That's how we counted it growing up. One Mississippi, two Mississippi. Ready or not, here I come. All right, one Mississippi. Now think about that as like a moment in your life. And let's name it. Let's give it a name like crazy guy talking on the stage. Right? So that's one second. Million seconds. How long is that? It's like 11 days. About 11 days. So think if you named each of the seconds for 11 days. What about like, I don't know, a, a trillion seconds? Well, that's 3,000 years. Think about naming each second for 3,000 years, each moment of your life. I mean, I couldn't even come up with like a name for 365 days, much less... 3,000 years. Verse 26 says that God holds each of the more than three septillion stars by name in his head. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Not one of them is out of place either. Verse 12 says that that he weights the mountains and the scales and the hills and the balance. The idea is to adjust something so that it's just right according to measure. So... um, in the morning, I bring out a scale every morning, and I weigh my coffee beans. 
And I make sure that my coffee beans are just like, I, I know it's weird. So I'm like taking out like each bean to make sure that it's just on the nose. And then I grind it and then I put it back in and I weigh it again and make sure it's right. And then I weigh the water that I'm pouring on there to make sure that the coffee tastes just right. You know, because if you have too much of the ratio or too little, it's not going to be good. If you have too much water, right? And, 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 and then I've also got a timer on it. So I'm like making sure that, that it, the beans are extracted for just the right amount of time because a little too, too light and it gets kind of like, I don't know, um, like, I, whiny bitter it's weird and then it's like bitter if it's too long so 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 it's like just right you know the earth is an amazing place if it was a little bit closer to the sun or a little bit further away if it was tilted a little bit more or not tilted at all life as we know it would be unsustainable on this planet Do you know how incredibly unique this earth is? Marilyn Robinson is an author who I like a lot. She was being um, interviewed in The Guardian. And they were asking her, they were talking about the way that she observes the earth and, and the way that she takes stock of the earth. And, and, uh, and they said, you know, what is this, how does this relate to your faith? And if you know anything about Marilyn Robinson, she's a bit of a contrarian and she doesn't m- mind offending anyone. In fact, I think she kind of sets out to do it. And uh, so she answers the person. She says, Marilyn Robinson writes, uh, one thing I cannot understand about contemporary society is that as we become more aware of the incredible singularity of our earth, we cannot seem to allow ourselves to recognize it. And even if one day we were to discover that there is another planet out there just like ours, that fact would just mean that in all this universe, there were only two things so absolutely extraordinary. Now, listen to this. Such a sort of atheism that rejects this thought seems so antiquated. I don't see any reason in it. Is it really more plausible to think that the conditions had to be just so for this earth to exist and life on this planet? Is it really more plausible that that came about through the machinations of time plus chance? Is that really more plausible than than believing that it actually came out or more intellectually credible that it came about through an omnipotent, purposeful deity? Albert Einstein was not a, a, a religious man, though he did believe in God. And one of his students, uh, Charles Misner, once observed that he said that the reason why Albert Einstein didn't go to church, he, he hypothesized, was not because Einstein didn't believe in God or respect God or revere God. He, he, he surmised that he didn't go to church because he... If he would have gone to church, he would have heard the preachers and the things that the preachers were saying, he would have thought was kind of blasphemous. Because the universe that Einstein had spent his life studying, he reckoned, must have an author more deserving of honor and respect than what he was hearing in the churches.
We live in an incredible world. In an incredible universe. And the author of it is God himself. And Einstein, the accusation that he brings to the churches of limiting God and making God seem small, well, he could not bring that accusation to Isaiah. Because Isaiah is a big God. Look at verses 21 through 23. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who who stretches out the heaven like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Isaiah says, before this God, the people of the earth are like grasshoppers, like the chocolate-covered grasshoppers that we eat. No? And and what about the rulers of the earth? What about the decision-makers? What about the people who hold the power? You know, the, the greatest of the greats. Think about Napoleon. Alexander the Great, Attila the Hun. It says that the rulers of the earth are under the complete control of the enthroned Lord. What about the nations? The nations, they fall as soon as they rise. Verse 24, scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, and when he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Let's give ourselves a little historical perspective here. Do you think anybody living at the time of Alexander the Great would have thought that within 200 years, the Greek Empire would be nothing? Do you think anybody living at the end of 200 A.D. would have thought that the Roman Empire within 200 years would be nothing? Go look at a map of Europe from before the First World War. It looks different, like very different than today. When's the last time you went and hung out in the Austro-Hungarian Empire? Or visited Prussia. You know, this nation could fall within 75 years. It could not exist. It could be nothing. Historical perspective shows us that that's that's actually a very plausible thing. And do you know the reason... If that were to happen, the primary reason, it's not because of economic policies or lack of technological development. It's not because of, it's not because of um, environmental concerns or unsustainability. The primary reason what would cause this nation to fall, like every other nation, would be simply this. The breath of his mouth. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. 
Isaiah's is a big God. He is the all-powerful creator and sustainer and ruler of the universe. So why do you say, O Jacob, and why do you speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right hand is disregarded from my God. Why do you say these things? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. You know, one reason why I think that we have such a hard time finding comfort in the midst of our suffering and our trials and our tribulation is because there is no way to gain comfort unless we look to something that is bigger than those trials and tribulation for our comfort. See, what we need is a bigger God. The only way that you can endure the terror of tribulation is to have a God that is more awesome than the tribulation is terrible. And the only way that your faith can hold steady in the midst of severe suffering is to have a God who is more substantial than the sufferings are severe. And when you are suffering, let me tell you, when you are suffering, you do not need real suffering. When you look at the real suffering in this world and the real evil, And the tragedies, what you do not need is you do not need a Jesus who is telling you about how there's a silver lining in it. And you don't need a Jesus who's going to like whisper empty religious platitudes into your ear. You need much more than that. And what you don't need is a Jesus you don't simply need. You need something more than a Jesus who is your homeboy or a Jesus who will stroke your hand and tell you that it's all right. You need much more than that. What you need is a Jesus of infinite glory who sits on the throne of the universe and promises to marshal every molecule in this universe in pursuit of his plan and for your good. And who stands behind his plan for your salvation and will let nothing stand in his way. That's what you need. And that's who you have. Verse 9. Go up on a high mountain. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Don't you need that arm? Don't you want that arm? Because it's the same arm that rules for him. That picks up his lambs. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. And he will gather the lambs in his arm. And will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those who are with young. See, the same arm that rules the universe is the arm that carries his children. So why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you keep on speaking, O Israel, and say, My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded from my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Do you want comfort, real comfort in the midst of sorrow and suffering and tragedy and uncertainty? Meditate on the omnipotence 
of God. Now that is good news. But let's be honest, for some of us, it simply doesn't sound good enough. Because those questions, those nagging questions, they're still there. Even if we know about this all-powerful God who can bring that power to save us, we still have these nagging questions like, like, God, why did you let my first marriage fail? These nagging questions like, God, why did you allow my child to suffer so? These nagging questions like, God, why did you take my parent when I was so young? God, why? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. And his understanding is unsearchable. Do you know that his understanding is unsearchable? See, I don't think we do. It's why we continue to ask the question, why? Because we think that his understanding is searchable. Bart Erdman was in a classroom one time, and he was asked by one of his students, what, if anything, would cause you to regain your faith? And he actually pointed them to his book called God's Problem, where he answers that question. He writes, quote, I think that if, in fact, God Almighty appeared to me and gave me an explanation that could make sense of even the torture, dismemberment and slaughter of innocent children. And the explanation was so overwhelmingly powerful. That I could actually understand, then I'd be the first to fall on my knees in humble submission and admiration. What's Bart Urban saying? He's saying, if God could give me a reason for all the terrible suffering of this world that I could understand in the way that he governs the world, then I would be the first to worship him. And many of us are saying the same thing. God, why? Tell me why this happened. Show me why. But here's my question for Bart Erdman and maybe the question for you and me. What makes us think that if God actually were to give us an explanation, we could understand it? Like, like what makes us think that the God who, who holds over three, the names of over three septillion stars right in the front of his mind? What makes us think that he could actually give us an explanation in, of, of how the universe works and our suffering and everything else in a way that we could actually comprehend? See, we keep asking because we actually assume 
that his understanding is is searchable. We actually assume that it is fathomable. We actually assume that if he were to explain it, we could take it in because we assume that that while God might be a bit better than us and while he might be uh, way more powerful than us, he's not so much smarter than us. I mean, we're pretty much on par, so he could explain it to us. How many of you are parents? I mean, you parents know this. Like, let's just, you know, um, don't tell my daughter about this after. But listen, how much smarter do you think I am? How, like, more brain power do I have, right, and capacity to understand the world than my daughter at this point in time? Uh, maybe double, triple, uh, maybe ten times, who knows, right? At this point in time. You know, there are lots of things that my daughter asked me about the universe, and she asked why, and I have no idea how to explain it to her. That's between me and my daughter. How much greater is the gap between us and God? See, Isaiah's God is not only infinitely more powerful than we are. He is also infinitely wiser. Look at verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did the Lord consult? And who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? See, his ways are past finding out. And the finite cannot contain the infinite. And if God were to actually answer why, I don't think that we could understand it. And I think that's true. And let me be really clear about this because I have no idea why preachers say this. Listen. I think if God were to try to tell me why he made us a one-child family, And why he gave us another child and then took it away. I don't think I'd have any idea or ability to comprehend. Maybe I could, but I doubt it. I think if God was to tell us why these things happen, I don't think that we would have ability to understand. And I don't think that heaven cures that problem. I don't know why people say when we get to heaven, we'll know at that point. Do we become God and we have an infinite mind? In heaven, it won't matter because we will not try to truncate God. We will see that he is infinitely more beyond us. So I don't think that I'm going to get a resolution to my questions there that comes in the form of an explanation. See, here's the irony. We think that comfort will come from more information. But listen to me. A God who can satisfy your questions is not a God who can satiate your soul. Because a God that we can predict and instruct and control is not a God who will capture our affections or command our devotion. A God who we can understand is not a God who is worthy of our worship. And that's the God we need. 
See, in order to think properly about God, we must first stand properly before him. And until we have a sense of the greatness of God, of his infinite wisdom, we can't even ask the right questions, much less accept his answers. What we need is not an explanation. What we need is an encounter. An encounter with the living God. Whose greatness is so great that when we try to comprehend him, our minds explode. Whose goodness is so good that we don't know whether to draw near or run away. And whose love is so reckless that he would rip the curtains of the heavens and actually come down, take on flesh, and be crucified by the hands of sinful men. For what? For who? For rebellious grasshoppers. Explain that to me. How can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain? For me who him to death pursue? Oh, love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me. The judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. See, this is the mystery that even the minds of angels cannot comprehend. We want God to explain our suffering. I got a bigger question. Explain why he would save the likes of you and me. That's the mystery. So do you not know? Have you not heard? His understanding is unsearchable. Do you want to know who is able to draw comfort from this passage? Sheep. Those who identify with sheep. Sheep who have no control. Sheep who do not understand. Sheep who entrust themselves completely into the strong arms of their shepherd. See, it's only those small enough to be held in his arms who can know the comfort of his bosom. And it's there. With your head upon his breast. In his strong arm that all the doubts and questions fade away. Because when you humble yourself and confess your inability and smallness before this God. You are able to gain an unshakable confidence. Because your comfort is no longer and no longer depends on your finite mind's ability to understand. And it no longer depends on your feeble will's ability to control. See, comfort does not come from having all the answers, but from knowing the one who does. Comfort does not come from being able to control your circumstances, but from being held in the limitless power of the one who oversees every eventuality. That's where we find comfort. And so won't you, won't you let yourself be picked up by this God? Won't you let yourself be carried in his arms?
And it's there where we gain not only comfort, but strength. Do you not know? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run. And not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Are you running and weary, collapsing under life's pressures? Collapse into the arms of your Savior. Do you feel weak and powerless and faint? And do you feel like you are on the verge of a breakdown? Break down before him and let him carry you. Allow yourself to be carried in the arms of the one who loves you and gave himself for you. Lay your head upon his bosom and rest there. Amen.